Hosea 2 begins this way, and this is the word of God. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. As she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way of thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her pass. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished her with silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth and her feasts and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of days for Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from your, her mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. And in that day I will answer, declares Yahweh. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say to me, you are my God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that good news because we see our sin so clear in this. I see my own sin and my own faults and my own unfaithfulness, my own going after idols and committing spiritual adultery against you. God, I hope that I ask that you would help us to humble ourselves beneath you by seeing our sin, but we would also see the vanity of our sin, the worthlessness of our sin in light of the great worth and value that you are that we would see how much you love for us and how much you care for us in this passage. And Lord, we would even see just at the heart of you is a God who wants to forgive sinners and wants to give us mercy. 
God, might by the end of this passage, every single person be able to say what the last sentence says. You are my God. Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we talked about God's covenant love for Israel. And this introduced to us to the topic of what covenant love is. And we talked about covenant love in the practical way of marriage today, of how a man marries a wife, and we would consider that a covenant. And what Hosea 2 begins to do is it begins to investigate that covenant love. Because it takes the picture of a marriage, and it takes the picture of a man and his wife having covenant with one another, being in covenant love with one another, and it asks the question, how is this going to work? But the problem that's going to be presented in Hosea 2 is the problem of how is God who wants to, as verse 1 tells us, to have mercy on his people and to make them his people and for them to receive mercy, how is that picture going to work out when his his people are not faithful to him? How is that God going to be their God when those people don't want to be his people? And this is a very important question for you because it's not just Israel and it's not just the Old Testament times, but it's right now in this world today. And I'm not talking about the world out there, I'm talking about in the church today. How is it that God will be our God, me included, how will God be our God when it is that we do not want to be his people? That's the question that's going to be proposed to us throughout this chapter that's being laid up for us to answer is how is God going to interact with his sinful people? And so as we investigate this passage, the mental image that I want you to think about is I want you to think about God as a groom, as a husband to a bride. And I want you to think about Israel as a bride and you could also think about yourself as that bride as well. And I want you to think about God wanting to marry that bride, wanting to be faithful to that bride, wanting to adorn her and love her. But that bride says, no, I don't want that. I want to go after my own lovers. I want to go after something else. I want to go after what I find enjoyable, what I love. And I want you to see what God begins to do in the midst of that unfaithfulness. What God begins to work in the midst of our unfaithfulness. But to begin to work, we have to see what that unfaithfulness is. So I'd invite you to look for me at verse 2. We kind of talked about verse 1 just there a second ago of what God desires in the relationship. That's what God desires in verse 1. But verse 2, this is how the people begin to pay him back. Hosea 2 verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Has she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts? And what it begins to talk about right there is the idea that Hosea is describing Israel's rebellion as a woman who's ran away from the Lord, who wants nothing to do with the Lord, who's committed themselves to something else. Instead of God being their husband on one end, they've said, we've seen another God. We've seen something else that we want, something that we desire, And these are what we would talk about in the Old Testament as idols. Idols that are pictured as God. Idols that we equate divinity to, deity to, but yet are man-made. They're not true gods. And what they say is we would rather want those. And we see this begin to play out. And because of that, God says, I'm going to punish you. Verses 3 through 4, and I'm not going to go through that. I already read it. I'm going to punish you. Why is it continually? It's because they've gone after those idols. They've forsaken the Lord and united themselves with them. 
And to give us a picture of what this actually looks like, I'm going to read a reference back to 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33 in a second. Because sometimes when we think about idols, it's kind of abstract. It's kind of removed from our culture because it's not what we usually think about. So I want to give you a picture of what was actually happening on the surface in their day and how dramatic it was and why it was that they were so unfaithful to the Lord. 1 Kings 16, 29-30 records the king of Israel, who was Ahab at the time, which is potentially the worst king that Israel ever known, and this is how it describes him. Listen right here when it says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So there's the first part. I'm going to read a little bit more in a second. But what you need to see is right here, the king of Israel, he was so committed to worshipping other gods that he went and took a woman who was a part of these other nations who worshipped other gods, a woman who was not an Israelite, a woman who was something else, and he went and took her as his wife to worship Baal. Because what did this woman do? She was a worshiper of Baal. She was a worshiper of those gods. And so quick distinction real here, right here when we were seeing is God said, Israel, you're supposed to marry Israelites. But it wasn't an ethnocentric idea. It wasn't the idea of these people over here because of their ethnicity, because of their race, because of those things. You shouldn't marry them. No, it was because these people, these races over here, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, and the, all the otherites out there, they worshipped other gods. It was a theological distinction. It wasn't an ethnic distinction. And they worshipped other gods, and, and Ahab goes after them. And listen to what else he does. So he took a wife, Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he erected even an altar to Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And that's what's on the surface, is Israel's unfaithfulness is erecting these altars. It's erecting these things, these stones, these woods that they're going to give their worship to. They're going to worship these altars and these idols instead of God. And because of this, there's a divorce between God. But what I love about Hosea right here is he gets under the surface See, in the book of Kings, what we see is we see just kind of the outside of how these things are all working out. We see all this disobedience. But in Hosea 2, especially verses 2 and verse 5, what we see right here is what's paining God the most right here is not that they're erecting altars. It's rather it's they're taking their love and they're giving them to altars. The problem with Israel is that their hearts are not set on the Lord. The problem with Israel is that they're paying their hearts to altars. Look at verse 5 and what it begins to say. It says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Why? For she said, I will go after my lovers. Did you hear that? It's not as though Israel saw this rebellion and said, Eh, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I really want to do this. No. They saw these altars, they saw, these Baal, they, they saw Baal, and they said, ooh, that looks good. Ooh, I would love to do that thing. Ooh, that looks awesome to sin in that way. What was really happening, which was the problem in Israel, and which is still the problem I'm going to contend today, is that our hearts have passions and loves and desires in other places than beyond God. 
or not for God, I should say, not beyond God, that are not for God is what I want to say. Brother Robert, where do we see that in the world today? Well, I think we see this in the world today oftentimes is the idea that ultimately, yes, we can be doing kind of church things. We can be going to church. We can be doing Wednesday night stuff and be all about these kinds of things like that. But ultimately, what are the things that we're most passionate about? What are the things that we have the greatest affection for? What are the things that we have the greatest love for? And you can see this pretty easily throughout your week. Is the places that you spend your time, maybe the ways that you spend your money, where your thoughts are going towards. People can just even see it by your way of life. I was actually just talking to some of you in here a second ago about yesterday, Saturday, and Saturday is usually kind of a relaxation day, relaxation day for me. But it's also college football day. And my wife, and I've talked about college football in here a few times, my wife gets to see me get real passionate, get real excited about college football. And she'll probably say it's scary, actually, accidentally, and I do mean completely accidentally. I was like, we, Ash and I were sitting together, and is Michigan, Michigan State playing, and Michigan State scored a touchdown, and I immediately like slammed my fist, but Ashley was sitting right there and like just banged her knee, and she was like, ah, and like, but I get passionate, right? I have a passion. And you can tell what my love is for, right, in that moment. And now, obviously, we want to be careful. I'm not saying you can't be passionate about anything, but you can tell right there, my passion is for college football. I hope you would see more passion for the Lord in me, but the question for all of us is, do we have greater passion for the Lord than maybe something like college football? It's not a bad thing. Do we have a greater passion for the Lord than maybe something like our family? Family is a good thing. It's something you should be devoted to. But are you more concerned about your family than your relationship with the Lord? What about your job? Do you give more time, more mental capacity up here to your job than you do your thinking about the Lord? Job, work, family, those things aren't bad things. But what is it that you're giving your efforts, your desires, your wants to? Because while Baal worship and making Asherahs and making these altars and building idols may be different than what we're seeing today, the heart is still the same. They had a passion for Baals. Some of us have more of a passion for our job, for our family, and these things that might even be good than we do for the Lord, for our hearts to be directed towards them. And I want to give some qualifications. It's not as though you should just cut off these things from your life. You should keep your family, keep your job, keep those things. But are these things directed towards the Lord? Are these things for him? Are we giving our efforts to him? Good example of this and how we kind of see this playing out is what I like to call relational capacity. And so I'll kind of use an illustration to talk about relational capacity is this past week I was with um, my students. Obviously, I'm a teacher, a high school teacher, and I was with my students, and one of the students was asking me for dating advice. Now, most of the students know not to ask me for dating advice because usually as we ask a few questions and we come to kind of the conclusions of those questions, we kind of find either they're not a Christian, they're really spiritually immature, or they just don't need to be dating anyone because they don't have actually good reasons, faithful reasons to be dating. And usually it comes to me like Mr. Rosa saying, you probably shouldn't date. And so nobody likes hearing that, right? But this guy, and I would actually say he's a fairly mature believer um, for a high schooler, fairly mature believer, he was genuinely asking about his dating experience. And so I was giving him some advice, and he was listening, and he was saying, yeah, that actually makes sense. Like, that actually makes sense to be doing this. High school boys, listen up. I see you talking over there. So listen up. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, I think I've given him these talk as well. But the last thing I said to him was exactly what I'm talking to you right here, is the last thing I was talking to that high schooler about when he was thinking about dating, when he was thinking about this, I said, Roshan, and I'll give you his name. His name's Roshan. And I said, 
be careful not to give her too much relational capacity. Be careful not to give her too much of your relational capacity. And he said, what do you mean by that, my relational capacity? And I said, well, let's think about it. Since you started potentially thinking about this girl and dating this girl, have you been thinking about her, talking to her, talking to your friends about her, and on and on besides that, more than you have potentially just with your friends? Or more potentially than you are with God and meeting with him and focusing on him? What's been happening with your mind? And what you'll notice, and he said, ah, that makes sense. Because what he was doing is he was giving more relational capacity to this girl who hasn't even dated yet or anything like that, focusing on her more than anything else. And I said, the problem with that is it will raise it so high up in your mind and so high in your ideas and your thoughts is that it will become like a God to you. And what will happen is you'll fix on that, you'll focus on that, and you'll completely lose sight of God as the highest being, as the highest modus, as the chief ideal in your life. Where what you should be worshiping as God, you'll now begin to worship something else. And now, of course, what I'm saying here is not the idea that you just cut things off from your life. And I told him that. It's not that you cut this off. But rather, it's that we have priorities. Rather, it's that we give our worship to the Lord. Because the scary thing is, is what's coming next in this passage. Because for those of us who, it's not so much of a dating relationship in high school, but for those of us who are giving our mental capacity, our relational capacity to our work, our friends, our family, we're abandoning God. And we're worshiping an idol instead. And what the Lord is going to do is the Lord is going to interact with you. The Lord in your unfaithfulness is going to come into the way and he's going to begin to say, I want you to be about me. Because if you remember verse 1, what God wants at the end of the day is his relationship to be with you. That you will be his people and you will be your God. But how is it that God is going to do that? How is God going to overcome your sin and overcome your unfaithfulness and overcome our idolatrous ways for us to begin to worship him? And the answer is, God is going to come in his discipline. Now, a quick word about discipline is, a lot of times we think discipline bad. We don't want that. And maybe we don't want that sometimes. But what we're going to begin to see, and hopefully what this is going to begin to open to us, is discipline is a very good thing. And it's a very good thing from the Lord because what it's going to begin to do is it's going to begin to cut those idols out of your life and it's going to begin to direct you to the one thing that you should be worshiping but also to the one thing that's actually going to give you joy. The one thing that's actually gonna satisfy you because it's like what God is going to do. He says, you've been worshiping all these other things that you love but you're missing out on the things that's actually gonna satisfy your love. We'll get to that here in a second. But look at what God begins to do. He begins to intervene with his unfaithful wife. We'll go six or seven, and then we'll kind of skip down a little bit to see what else God begins to do. So God begins to intervene. He begins to act. He begins to cut things out of their life. Six, he says, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. And she shall seek them but shall not find them. And so what's God going to do? He's going to make it so that they're not even able to get to the Baals anymore. Let's imagine my student, Roshan, imagine that he begins to potentially make this relationship an idol in his life. God's going to cut that away out of his life so that he's not able to pursue that anymore. Maybe us who've raised these things up in our life, maybe it's a job, maybe it's family, I don't know whatever else it is, God might cut those things away so that we won't be able to get them anymore. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful as we're going to see here in a second. But look what he does. Then she shall say, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And what God might do sometimes in disciplining us is God might break us down and take things away from us so that we will actually learn a lesson. And we're going to see what that lesson is here in a second at the end. But look at what else God is going to take away. Verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax where they were to cover her in nakedness. So he's going to take away even his common grace. He's going to take away their clothes from them. They're not going to have clothes anymore. Verse 10. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. God is going to put her to shame in front of the people who are her lovers. The people that she's giving worship to. The Baals and the idols and all those things they're not even going to want her anymore because she's so shameful verse 11 and I will put an end to all her mirth and her feasts and her moons and her sabbaths and all her appointed feasts and I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees of which she said these are my wages which my lovers have given me which I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them all the things that she began to love and fall for and enjoy so much in the world that she found even probably her identity in God strips away God disciplines He refines these things that are idols in our life and he removes them from our lives for a purpose that we're gonna get to at the very end. But verse 13, he finishes with this. And I will punish the feast of the days of Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with the ring of jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. He's gonna take everything away from her, but why? Why is it that Israel really got in this place initially? It wasn't just their desires. It was because they forgot about who God was. And I would contend with most of you that the reason why we're going to be unfaithful and the reason why we're going to raise up idols in our life is because it's cognitive first. We're going to forget who God is. We're going to forget that God is the God who created the heavens and the earth. We're going to forget that God is the God who supplies our every need and our every breath. We're going to forget that God is the God who saves us from eternal destruction in hell. And we forget those things and all of these things begin to happen. We go after these idols. We go after these things that look better because we've forgotten who the true God was. But God will take that away from us if we are his people and he is our God as he is intended. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, this is good news right now, is God will strip those things away from you. And this will be painful. This will hurt. Some of you, relevance to you, might be in this scenario right now, might be in this situation where there are things in your life that God has seen that are not worthy of him and not good for him and not leading you to follow him. He might be cutting those things out of your life, cutting those things of worship out of your life. So what? Hopefully at the end of the day, you will worship him. For Israel, what it's like for them is it's like when they're back in the wilderness generation. For those of you who remember back in the Torah, when Israel had sinned against God, they had, um, when Moses was up on top of the mountain, Israel erected a golden calf down at the bottom of the mountain, began to worship, and Moses came down all mad and obliterated the golden calf and made the people drink it. And then they go on out into the wilderness even more, and they begin to complain against God more and more and more and more. And because they complain and because they continue to run away from God, God says, I'm going to send you out into the wilderness for 40 years to destroy a whole generation of Israelites. That's what it's like back here for them. Is God is taking these things away. He's refining them. He's taking the things that they hold so dear away them. So hopefully they'll end up coming to know him. 
The reason the Lord disciplines us, as we're going to see here in a moment, is it's actually for our good. It's actually for his glory. Because even if we remember back in the wilderness generation, when Israel was being destroyed for 40 years, God responded like this in Deuteronomy 2.7 to them. Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows where you're going through the wilderness. These 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. What was it that they lacked? Well, they lacked everything. But what was refined? Everything that was not in obedience to God. Everything that was not driving them to worship of God. And what God will do in our lives is he'll cut these things down like he did for Israel. So at the very end, they'll be able to say, but God was with us. And God is the one who is near to us and dear to us. And he's the one that we worship. And he's the one we lift up. And he's the one we give praise to. Not anything else in this world. I'm sure many of you have been through these seasons. I know I have been through this season. I went through this season in college where God took these things that were idols in my life and he stripped them away. I've told you the stories about that time. But at the very end, of course, it was for the purpose of knowing him. A hymn writer who many of you know, John Newton, um, who wrote Amazing Grace, so one of the most famous hymn writers of all time, also knows this story very well. John Newton, when he was actually writing one of his hymn books, he was writing with a very dear friend to him, actually his best friend in his life. And what began to happen during that time is when he was writing with his best friend in his life, his friend developed um, some severe disease and ended up actually killing his friend. And he died, and he suffered in that time. And John Newton, through that time, didn't really know what was going on or how the Lord was working, but the Lord was working. And he responded back with this hymn called, I Ask the Lord. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this hymn because what it is is it's a hymn that shows us the purpose of God's discipline. Why God refines us. Why God takes these things away. And it might even be in your hymnal. I don't know if it is. But I asked the Lord, and it's kind of long, but just listen to how he begins to deal with these troubles and these sorrows and these hurts. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And so here's what he asked at the very beginning. He says, I want to know God. Here's how God responds, though. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. So he's saying, I hope I would have relief from all these hurts and all these pains, because he's stripping all these things away from me. But verse four, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. He more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed and cast out my feelings and laid me low. And John Newton is responding. He's talking about the time when he lost his friend. He's saying, I lost everything. Everything that wasn't for the Lord, I've lost it. And God's refining me through these difficulties and through this discipline. In verse six, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. And here's why these trials occur, John Newton responds. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. That thou mayst find thy all in me. 
Why did God run Israel through the wilderness originally? Why is God going to take these things away from Israel right here? Why might God take things away from our life? That we might see him as supreme. That we might see him as supremely valuable. That we might see him as supremely glorious. That he might be the chief of all treasures in our life. That nothing will come in the way of this. And what we must ask in our lives is, Lord, how is it that you're going to discipline me? How is it you're going to refine me of my idols? Because I know I have idols in my own life. How is it you're going to refine me of my want to be liked? I have a great want for approval. How are you going to refine me of that? And sometimes it's going to be difficult. But two truths that you need to see through this of this discipline that the Lord is going to lay upon him, and it's going to get better in a second, two things that you need to see is one, it's going to be good. Hebrews 12, I'm not going to read the passage for us, but if you look at Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 12, it talks about God being a good father. And he disciplines his children because he loves them and because it's for their good. And so we understand this is a good thing. It's going to produce a good product. However, though, it's going to be hard, too. It's going to be hard. I remember a guy who was discipling me back in college. His name was Brian. And he prayed one time. He said, Lord, I want you to grow me no matter what. Kind of like what John Newton prayed right there. Lord, help me to grow in faith and grace. Help me to do these things. And I remember talking to him a month after he prayed that prayer. And he said, man, the Lord's doing it. But it's hard. I've lost a lot of things. And he's shown me a lot of sin. And I've had a lot of struggles through these last few weeks. The Lord's discipline might be hard. But it is good. And what the Lord wants to also do in this time is he wants to strip away these idols from your life so that you'll actually see the glorious treasure that he is. You'll actually begin to love him. You'll be more passionate. You'll desire him more than all other things because what I want to say is he is better. He is more joyful. He's going to offer you so much more than that sin can satisfy, so much more than that sin can do. There's this phrase that, where that sin can give you. There's this phrase that we throw around all the time. I've heard it um, here a few times, and I've thrown it around before. I think I actually said it last week before the sermon. Is, uh, if it was any better, it'd be sinful, which is the idea that everything that tastes good or the best thing that ta- we can taste in this life is sinful. What I want to tell you is, that's not true. If it was any better, it would be glorious, It'd be holy. It would be like what this text is going to talk about because what I want to say is what is supremely desirable and what's actually going to satisfy you more is not sin, but is rather knowing God. It's knowing Him and understanding Him. And there's, um, I forget who the Puritan who said it, but he said this phrase one time. He said, until sin becomes bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And I was thinking about that phrase this morning, and I think it's actually the opposite. Until Christ becomes sweet, sin will not become bitter. What I want to do is I want you guys to see in this verse of how sweet God is, how sweet and how much better he is in your sin. And there's a sin that you're wrestling with, all of you are wrestling with right now in this room. And what I want to show you is Christ is so much better, more enjoyable, going to offer better delight, better satisfaction, whatever it is, and he's going to do something more. Listen to how the Lord responds now after he disciplines. I love this because he comes in softly and tenderly, and I think this is where you get to the heart of the Lord of what he's doing. He says, verse 14, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and make her a valley of a core and a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth as in the time when she came out to the land of Egypt. 
wow, what is God going to do when Israel has nothing? He's going to effectually call her. He's going to begin to show her how valuable, how wonderful, how delightful he is, and she's going to see that, and she's going to come towards it. It's going to be like the first time when they met, back when Israel was enslaved to Egypt, and God rescued them out of the chains and out of the bondage of Egypt, and God saved them, and they said, yes, God, you are our God, and he said, yes, Israel, you are my people. The experience is like a bride and a groom after they're married on their honeymoon. They are in love. They've known one another. It's wonderful. And the husband is alluring her, speaking tenderly to her and kindly to her. It's a wonderful picture of what this relationship is going to be like. And there's nothing better. It's awesome. It's beautiful. And it's satisfying. But more than that, verse 16 goes on to say, And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me Baal which is really good because remember what their hearts used to be set on? Their hearts used to be set on Baal. But now they're set on the Lord. They love the things of God. They love them. They're satisfied in them. They want them. Above all, their inclination is now for God. And there's even a little bit of a wordplay right here in the Hebrew is the word husband actually sounds like Baal. And so it's like it's saying, now you're going to have the true husband of yours. You're going to have the best of all husbands, the husband who loves you. And see how he loves you? For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and there shall be remembered her name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war and the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. What's this marriage going to be like? It's going to be the most awesome honeymoon imaginable. Ashley and I went on a great honeymoon down in Costa Rica, all-inclusive. was an awesome time. Recommend it to anyone else who's going to get married. Amazing. But that does not compare to this. Because what's this going to be like? This is going to be like back in the Garden of Eden. Listen to what it's like. It's going to be renewed with animals. It's going to be renewed with plants. And there's going to be only peace. It's like back in a Genesis 1 through 2 world. There's no flaws, no wrongs. That's what this covenant is going to be like. And this new covenant, it's going to come appear later in the book and it appears later in the Old Testament. This new covenant, what it is, it's going to occur through someone who's going to come. But look right here what it says about it. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. So you will be mine and you will never leave me. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. I love the picture of what it says right there of the idea that God is going to make Israel his bride through what process? Righteousness and justice on one side, but then steadfast love and mercy on the other side. So hear this, what God is going to do. In one way, God is going to be right. God is going to be holy. God is not going to do wrong. God is not going to forgive the sin of the guilty. That's what God is going to do, okay? But at the same time, God is going to show his steadfast love and God is going to be kind and God is going to be merciful and God is going to forgive. These things that seem polar opposite. How do we have God justice, um, his, his righteousness, but then also his steadfast love and his mercy? How is it that these things come together? They come together for us in the New Testament when we meet Jesus. When we meet a man who is full of grace and truth. A man who committed no sin, who was righteous and just and blameless but yet merciful and gracious and then went to the cross and suffered what? Not for his own sins but suffered for our sins 
at the cross, at the very middle of it, is where righteousness and then love meet. It's where God's holiness and God's mercy come together at the cross. Because Jesus suffers the complete, just, righteous demands of God's law on him so that he'll give you forgiveness of sins for anyone who believes in him. And brothers and sisters, and those of you who do not know the gospel, that is the message of the gospel. That you can believe in Christ Jesus because of what he's done for you and you can receive forgiveness from your sins. And because of what he's done, you can enter into this marriage right here. Into this marriage with God where you will be united to him and he will never leave you. Because God is a God who is not going to forsake his covenant promises. God is a God who is righteous. And when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He will, as it says, betroth you to me forever. And what will you begin to enjoy? What will you begin to experience? Verse 21 through 23. And in that day I will answer, declares Yahweh. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And she shall say to me, you are my God. What's the picture there at the end? Complete peace, everything's going to be renewed on the earth, and we get this awesome picture that even comes to us at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, where God is our God, and we are his people. How is it, as we asked in the beginning, How is it that God will interact with a faithless bride, with a bride who runs away from him? How is it that God will interact with us when we've rebelled so much against him? At the end of the day, through God's justice and righteousness and God's steadfast love and what he's done in the middle at the cross of Jesus Christ, God will, as the text says, be our God and we will be his people. And the curses that were once upon us and that were laid upon us will be taken away. We will have peace, We'll have safety, we'll have security, and we'll have a complete, renewed relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text, and we thank you for your word, that it speaks truth even when we do not. And Lord, we thank you for your message of the gospel which slices through all of our failures and all of our problems and all of our flaws and all of our idols that we lift up so high, even above you, Lord, it just shows us that they don't even compare because you are a God who effectually draws us to you and what you give us is so much better than anything else in this world. Lord, I ask that you would begin to work in the lives of believers in here. For those of you who are, those in here who are not believers, you would work in them, renew their spirit, renew their mind that they might know you Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.